0: Hi, I'm Brynn Thompson. This is the Coburn Ventures podcast. It's for our clients, for investors, for our community of industry leaders, fellows, and friends. This is a group that loves the craft of investing. Studies Change is dedicated to business analysis and leadership and all that's behind the scenes of that work. I hope you enjoy it. Today, we're talking about the history of the money management industry and how values that were baked in in the 1980s when this industry was really taking off may be dictating a lot of what we think is possible and right in the industry right now, and why emergence of ESG and ESG-related investment philosophies can seem so incongruent. But to do this, to go through unearthing founding values of an industry, we also discuss the concept of the commons and how it keeps perking up as a related or at least thought-provoking piece of political theory that relates to all the externalities that investors say are outside of our domain. So how long will we be able to draw that line? The forces all around the industry are changing. So let's take a look at it from these two angles today. I hope you enjoy it. Before we start, the next few episodes will be grouped around a topic. Uh, We're calling this a module and the first topic that we're doing is ESG. So we have heard from you that one reason you like the podcast is that it's just a nice quick way to learn or at least have some new ideas sparked without the labor of reading or studying some new writing. And so we grouped them together to facilitate that learning even more. Each episode will take a slightly different angle or have a guest from a different pocket of the ecosystem. And put together over a few weeks, we hope, will be an even more rewarding way to taking these inputs. So we hope you enjoy it. This conversation is really, I I would say, the people who will be the most interested in it are current ESG investors, but also uh, asset managers and other people in the industry or even company management who are wondering where they fit into this. We know ESG uh, funds are growing really quickly as a percent of of the whole market. And um, I think a lot of people maybe have a surface level understanding of why that's the case, but we wanna go a little bit deeper. And the topic for today, and this is gonna be part of a mini series we're doing in September, October on ESG. uh, We're gonna go into the topic of the commons. Um, This is a basic political concept of the commons. And yes, that's what we wanna talk about, but it's the commons meets the birth of our industry, which happened to really get going in a very wonderful time, the 1980s. So Pip, why don't you take it from there? Tell us a little bit more about the birth of our industry as we were talking about it. We're going to go back through the last 40 years because it's important to understand what got our industry really going um, and what fundamental concepts are behind that.
1: There's... uh A question someone with one of our clients yesterday, they said that they were posed the question by one of their clients, are you here to make money or are you here to do good in the world? And I started to reflect on how those two questions got broken into an either or. When I think of investing, I think of back from economics that it's about not consuming today to have more of what you want in your world in the future.
0: Just so any kind of, investing, th- that's in but, a general term, you invest yes. in taking a run so that you have a healthier body in the future.
1: Yeah, you could say that. But some people just flat out like running like me. But you, you could say, well, <laughs> uh, well for, for you, you were um, in a literacy training program. I I think you were, you were training people in a literacy program in New York. You were investing your time because you had this vision that the world would be a better place if some people who weren't literate could have the chance to read, and that might help them some way, mm-hmm. shape, or form, but you right. didn't do an ROI calculation, or when you send your kids to schools, most people aren't merely thinking, if I send them to kindergarten here, then that their money will be there, so this is a good ROI, so you right. invest because you want them to be more well-rounded, or more thoughtful, or more curious, or capable of getting a job, or whatever it might be, so um, investing is a big word. And in our industry, we've truncated it down to it's all about the numbers. And all of us have heard that phrase. It's all about the numbers. And I think, hmm, how did we get there? So (laughs) I was in this conversation. I was thinking, well, in the fabulous 80s, um, we were um, exposed to a few very new thoughts. Now, coming out of the 70s, which was a very difficult time for the at least the economy in the United States, for sure, hyperinflation and all that, Ronald Reagan came in and said, I got a new way of thinking about economics. And uh, there are many things about Ronald Reagan I really like, some I didn't like, but clearly he was a change agent. And he said, you know, this is going to trickle down. That's the deal. Trickle down. We're going to make it really super for businesses to get in, in business and the trickle down. Down meant, and we'll come back to this. It meant that there's this wonderful windfall that goes wide, far, deep, societal wide. Mm -hmm. If you focus just on the returns to the business and their ability to make money, there'll be this trickle down effect. All these great things will happen, and we'll come back. The very
0: nature is that everyone will benefit in some way, even if it's a little bit diminished, but it will, it'll be this fountain of
1: resource right and i think what we've seen over the last 40 years is that focus did a lot of really powerful things for business narrowly defined but it probably accelerated some problems in society it didn't have this trickle down trickle wide and the net effect was the commons Really, it was like you have free license not to worry about the commons whatsoever. When I think of commons, not just the environment, but you know, sleep patterns in society, or um, nutrition across society, or whatever, give the people what they want; they'll figure it out. Don't worry about the ramifications of schooling or food deserts or any of that stuff. Not your responsibility.
0: All right, slow down on that because you said some interesting things, like sleep deprivation and. <laughs> What was the other one? Something about caffeine.
1: So what, oh, yes.
0: what, do you, what do you mean there? Go
1: a little deeper. Well, I think in some businesses, we recognize that there's a license that you have to have in order to do certain things to other people in our society. If you want to cut someone's hair in a professional fashion, we say, you know what? You're going to have to get a license to do that. We don't want people just like abused at all. But in a lot of portions of our commons, there's no license at all. So for like
0: using the oceans for shipping.
1: Yeah, people like to focus on that. I think of the commons even much wider. Yes, using the oceans for shipping, great one. I think about in a a society which is arguably over-caffeinated, Starbucks doesn't have to have a license to sell coffee or its share of coffee or pay a price for the damage it does as part of a system that is over-caffeinating the world. Um, McDonald's doesn't have to have a license. You know, people sell brownies at counters and that next affects our um, diabetes and all that. You do not need to pay any price or even think about the role of what happens to the commons in the society, our collective health for instance, diabetes, for instance. You don't have, Coke doesn't have to pay a price directly to be able to sell what it sells that contributes to the commons.
0: And that is it. so hand in hand with that must be the belief that the individual actor is rational and will make healthy decisions on their own.
1: Yeah, um, and I laugh, but I'm making fun of all of us that that's that's really, really, really not the case.
0: And that idea a, is embedded in in a lot of economic theories. I, I, I would say like the ba- is the basis of
1: deeply economic embedded. theory. So if if this 1980s trickle down, trickle wide happened, you'd go, Oh, people are getting a great amount of sleep. But sleep deprivation is known as a really big issue, which Netflix kind of makes fun of by saying sleep is our competition. And they will so it's even but no one goes, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Doesn't business have a role in like the health of our citizens and the sleep patterns and our education and our, no, just let it rip. And not only just let it rip, you can actually, it's okay to mess with people's minds by selling, let's say fear. Even if that fear isn't really legitimate and you know, you're playing with people that's considered, that's considered good business. Have people afraid that if they disconnect from your cable channel, they're not gonna see the Arsenal games and let's hook them to the Arsenal games. Let's create an entire media, CNN, Fox, whatever, let's get that they feel like they have to be in. Let's get Facebook, et cetera. That's totally legit. We can play off of people's. And so this idea that people are gonna be making, including myself, making healthy choices, (laughs) That is definitely a core component that people are able to do that, and instead we know as we go a little further, like yeah, if you, we're going to wind up with type two diabetes, and we're going to type sleep deprivation, and we're going to you know use the oceans, and we're not going to fit da, 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 da. So this commons area was particularly um, well, it probably never was in quotes the responsibility, but in the eighties we sort of supercharged this. That's not our job at all.
0: You can see that in business models. I'm just thinking of media. Um, you could think of journalism as taking care of the commons, and the rest of what media does as um, something else. <laughs> um, um, you know, locking yeah. in for advertising revenue and things like that. And they are they can justify doing that so they can fund some journalism efforts. But where is the revenue model for great journalism you know, that's shrunk over the last few decades.
1: Yeah, a couple of examples of that. In, in the 19, late 30s, 1940s, there was a commission put together by Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt that came out with the conclusion of the downs, potential downside in our society to the commercialization of journalism and how that would affect uh, the political environment. Uh, Dan dug into this last year, which was like, you know, people have known that this was potentially a problem <laughs> for 80 years when you commercialized. Now, I don't know what the answer to all that is. Or George Clooney says, well, you know, I make this blockbuster so I can afford to make this really thoughtful movie. And I'm like, well, okay, George, you know, it is a tough life that you can make a movie for, you can dip down and do a movie for a million dollars that might serve people while you make 30 on the others. And I joke about that. So these issues were there before the fabulous eighties, but in the fabulous eighties was really the birth of our industry of money management in the form that it looks like today. And that was an accelerant and that came right at the time of Ronald Reagan. And what I'd argue is this question or this orientation in our industry of investment just boiling down to what's the return kind of was induced in the 80s with single stakeholders, with T-bone Pickens, with Carl Icahn of surface value, baby. That's what it's all about. It's all about the numbers. And that's a different form of investing than this wider definition. So that's that kind of really sprung up In the '80s, so I'd argue our industry is really nascent, 40 years in the shape that it Mm -hmm. is, Mm -hmm. and it was soaked in this 1980s period birthing of culture, the culture of our industry really birthed in this one single idea, and that's why we get this question. It's not maybe it's not our job to take care of the commons, and right now there's a lot of resistance to thinking, wait a second, multi stakeholders, single stakeholders. Well, we were really super birthed in the in the '80s with the single stakeholder model.
0: And just to that point of being such a young industry, we can also look at how many different revenue streams in our industry have, have, you know, flourished and then disappeared, flourished and then disappeared, right? Like trading (laughs) flourished and then disappeared, gone to zero. Um, All different kinds of fees, hedge fund fees, and then not to zero, but way, way, way depreciated. So I think... Uh, We think of I think of this industry is just growing and being extremely profitable, um, you know, still a lot left. But if we look at it, there's Mm. been a lot of disruption and a lot of maybe some searching of what is what is the value? What are people paying for? What are clients paying for? And what it just brings up to me, what's it going to look like in 10, 20 years?
1: My oh, my. When I said that, when I argue up that our industry was really birthed in the 80s, there are people listening that go, wait, 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 investments have been taken care of for like ages and da, da, da. But there was a certain generation of our industry birthed in the 80s. Yes, Warren Buffett, I think, was involved in one of the first Hedge funds. It wasn't called a hedge fund, but the 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 birth of the hedge funds really started to like go crazy in the '80s and then into the '90s. It wasn't a thing in the '70s. When I think about Benjamin Graham, his most notable contribution was bringing deep thought and research into (laughs) studying companies. Like we go, whoa, that's like he was like the Sigmund Freud of like our industry. Like he was such that like. Oh boy, that's a good idea. And so I, I was just yesterday with one of our clients, I was doing a, a brief history of history. I suppose you'd say, when I started in the industry, there's this thing called the rate book. I was, worked on a trading desk and well, what was the rate book? Well, up until about 1973 or so, there'll be some people listening to this who would get the dates better than me. There was a single rate for commissions. There's a, there's a table, It was a standardized rate it was a form of collusion basically. So whether you went to JP Morgan or wherever you went, you'd pay the same price. Mm -hmm. There was no discounted Muriel Seabird Vanguard, nothing like that existed. (laughs) And so here we have this this single rate and someone from the government said, that seems like collusion. (laughs) And they said, oh, oh, here's what we'll do. We'll have a, a rate book that'll show mathematically, it'll be really easy, it'll be paper, everyone will have them and it'll show discount rates, and then they can have discount rates. So I worked on the trading desk. And so when someone would call over with a small order, like not from like a big institution, they'd call over, Phil, blank, 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 you know, down 40. And what that meant was I was gonna open up this book and I was gonna find down 40 off of the old rates, the pre 72 rates. (laughs) And when I find that number, Bryn, oftentimes the number would be like 35 cents a share like 35 cents a share 35 (laughs) cents a share and then there was this thing called negotiated rates negotiated rates were when the institution was pretty big they'd say hey we're not going to pay 35 we're going to march that down and so when I kind of started in the industry early 90s that was like five or six cents a share Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. no one was paying less than five cents a share so (laughs) the point being is and today it's It's (laughs) it's uh, free. <laughs> it's pretty close. It gets close, close to, to zero free. and, yeah. you know, individuals through Robin Hood, it's, it is literally free. Mm-hmm. So that's, that, those are incredible milestones. Well, when that started to happen in the 80s, they started to look to find and create an industry of re- They'd throw research in and these things that didn't exist on the cell side before in mass started to get loaded in and that's why the sell side business models are so crazy because it started off just there's a single rate pay it now we're going to throw in some research well what are people paying for they liked our analyst blah 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 and so that started to happen and they'd find people that went to wharton or went to duke or went to the london school of economics or went to that and then start to put those people in to sort of make it look more legitimate like you're interfacing with someone who's like boy he looks the part he's like it's usually a, a, a he then, mm-hmm. and he looks a part good and he's got the right tie and all that. And he doesn't speak like he came from the Bronx or whatever. So that industry really started in the eighties. Um, mm-hmm. Before that, yes, there were people doing it, but really it kicked off. And the first superhero of our time was Peter Lynch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That wasn't that long ago. He's still alive and kicking and doing well. Right. So that background of the history tells you, okay, we birthed this thing in the 80s, really. We threw in Carl Icahn, who's still at it, and T-Boom, all these people. We said, let it rip. It's just about the numbers. Investing is about the numbers. Investing is, has nothing to do with literacy rates in society or sleep deprivation. Or, if you just let it rip, good things will happen. Now we're looking and saying, huh. Maybe we ought to think about this a little bit more because society doesn't seem that well.
0: So no wonder it's really difficult for investors today to grapple with what what is ESG, how to do it, how to put it into a process um, because it's a totally different mindset. I mean, there are things that are related and I actually think Mm. that at the core of fundamental analysis, it's the same. Right you're looking at the impacts of an enterprise and what's going on with that and where their um, strengths and weaknesses and you're just expanding that out. But we have a hard time when it comes to. um, if that ever bumps up against profits.
1: Well, I think it's really cool. Uh, You remember at Sundance when one of our friends, Jen Corriero, Jen, said, I think investors think their job is to predict the future when their job's really to create the future. Mm. And when I will say to people, investing is really about having more in the world in the future than of the things you want in our industry, back to the birth of an industry since the 1980s that sounds like a foreign concept when I will share that even with people in our ecosystem, let alone, you know, the hedge fund manager, that the the, the caricature of that hedge fund manager of which there's probably still a lot. So that seems like, Whoa, that's a different thought. Like investing is like about having more of what you want in the world. Well, do I want more Coca-Cola in the world? Do I want more iPhones in the world? Do I want the Chinese government recently said, you know what? We don't want, we think, rightly or wrongly, we think kids having too much video games is really a terrible idea. Mm -hmm. And so you saw that they're going to limit kids to three hours max a week and only on the weekends of video games. Mm -hmm. So the government is stepping in and saying, there is a society here. There's no trickle down. We are the force that comes in and decides and we're going to make a rule that says, now that couldn't fly in the West. <laughs>
0: People no, going, my When I told my children that they immediately asked what the repercussions would be for those kids, as if they were already thinking how they would get around it. If they lived in China.
1: <laughs> that's saying, great. Well,
0: you don't want to mess with
1: that. One of my friends who has a couple of kids, I turned and said, Hey, if they said this, what would you think? And she said, well, it's probably a good idea, but I don't want people telling me what to do. Fair enough. And, I, and then I said, well, they do tell you that your kids have to go to school, otherwise they're gonna come in and find you, right? And they go, yeah, but, you know, so our orientation of taking care of the commons is we've all been trained of, it's definitely not business's job, but we also don't really want the government doing this. So how does that all mesh and meet? I was maybe going to go back to that initial question. Yeah. From the client was and come up with some practical ways of thinking about that and maybe even an answer which you probably won't be brave enough to directly say but to think (laughs) through this so the question is are you here to make the world a better place or are you here to make us money now among other things scott booth our friend has taught me more about money and its role and, and probably anyone and one of the things that i learned is money actually has no inherent value it does provide you different, among other things, optionality, um, which is one of the benefits. The more money, the better in, in terms of optionality. Now, the more money also might lead to a society that you know is materialistic in comparison, so there's a lot of potential downside. But one of the advantages is you have more money. So here's the question, it lines up, are you here to make the world a better place or are you here to make money? And where I came to on that answer is, Our role, I'm answering as if I was one of our clients speaking to one of their clients. Our role is to act as a facilitator and an agent so that you can make the differences in the world that you want to make more of those. Whatever your vision is of a better world, whether it's more scholarships or whatever that is, we're here to facilitate and be an agent to create you having the opportunity for more options, which is represented in terms of money. Mm -hmm. So
0: Mm -hmm. Let's pretend I worked at GE for 30 years. And so Mm -hmm. someone's investing on my behalf. And there's actually no direct link between me as the auto worker. (laughs) We're really stretching it now, but (laughs) this is pretend I'm the auto worker Um, and the institution that's investing on my behalf. So do we have just such a disconnect because the person who's investing on my behalf is going to say, I can reduce this down to one thing. I need to make more money. And then whatever Bryn, the auto worker does with that in her retirement or whatever it is, is up to her, but I will be fired if I don't, you know, make more money. So that, that intermediary really it's not even the asset manager. Sometimes it's the person who's investing on behalf of huge groups of people. Um, that, that might be a hard one because there's this almost like a middleman that can only focus right now on that absolute return. Do we need, like, is that shifting too? Or that person, that entity I, can, can think multi-stakeholder?
1: So here's how I think about it. I think it's a great question. The first thing that I want to drop in in answering the question is no one in the system can have this conversation from a place of the point is not to get fired.
0: Because that is in itself devolved and a toxic place to be coming from, or yes, toxic maybe it too matter. strong, but it's at least devolved.
1: Uh, it's a self-interested system that it may be the problem. But if it's, I don't want to get fired, I'm like, that has nothing to do with how you're serving your client. Is that true? Can I understand that at a human level? Absolutely. Should that be um, depicting what your action or determining what your actions are? No. Could you imagine going into a client and say, well, first off, the purpose is not to get fired. Like, uh, no, that doesn't cut it. I'm not just talking about being inspirational or stuff. It's like, no, you have a job to do, and if you have a conflict of interest that involves you not getting fired.
0: Well, but I think that is how they would say it. <laughs> I have to make returns, oh, totally. like, let me say, like 300 basis points above XYZ, or else I'm up on the chopping block.
1: Absolutely. And so that I, is
0: that is how they've devolved down serving the client.
1: Absolutely. So I think the nice thing about the practicality of how you speak of, yeah, that's a reality in the world versus you know, what would be a better world or how would we like to behave and all those. I think it's good to see the distinction between those two things.
0: Because so, this is exactly what we were talking about with the genesis of our industry, like has been t- reduced down.
1: Yeah, that tension is definitely there. So my answer uh, to this question starts in, in the example of your your Uncle Lee is, okay, I'm gonna make certain assumptions about un- what Uncle Lee wants to do with this more money, these optionality. Mm -hmm. If I find out that he wants to do something um, like um, pay for hate billboards all throughout the United States with this extra money, I might say, or, you know, um, fortify white supremacist groups throughout the world, I might go, you know, my vision and your vision don't match up, I have to fire you
0: meaning there might be another place for you, go find that group, but right. for what w- you want alignment in what we're doing. That's the point of this example, right? Like alignment will make the whole thing more powerful.
1: Right, so um, if if you as your, as the facilitator of an agent, we have to think about, well, what things in the world do we actually are, uh, is in our vision of a better world. And then our clients will listen to their vision of the better world. If that is compatible, it doesn't have to be the same. It just has to be compatible. Oh, he wants to do this and this with the money. Okay, yeah, that works. Now, if our vision as a investment manager is very, very tight, we're gonna have fewer clients because some of their vision won't match with our vision. No harm, no foul. It's just, oh, that's good, okay. There's a whole
0: marketplace out there.
1: Right, now, if we say we have no vision as a facilitator, um, there's gonna be repercussions. Obviously, then anyone could be a client There might be financial benefits to that. But you also might wind up with a bunch of people that come to work and think, you know, all we're doing is making the money. And I don't know, that doesn't sound like, how are we fitting into Gen Corrieros? We make the world a better place. Like, I don't get it. We'll take any client, et cetera, et cetera. So you as a firm have to decide really implicitly, explicitly, what is your vision of a better world? And the clients, is that compatible with you?
0: Well, by default, I mean that it's really interesting that you say that almost like that really um conscious thought of are we making the world a better place? Because by default, when you invest, you are creating some change in the world. So absolutely. I think this is really just having an awareness of what these investments that I've made, they are um, tipping scales. And so how can we look at how those scales are tipping? And if we are okay with that and, and not
1: in, in our, in in our business, um, knowing each person individually, when people will ask me and get to know our business, I'll say the common traits about our clients, because our clients either choose or don't choose us. We either choose or don't choose them. Um, our clients are highly successful. They are very passionate about what they do. They're not satisfied. They want to be even better at it. And there's a bigger picture than just lining their own wallet. They want to have an effect that's very positive on the world through the work that they do. That's very common. And our clients have met each other. And it's like you put them in a pool. There's no one standing out like a sore thumb that's just about that. Ah, it's just all the, uh, the returns and like, you know, in, in that grumpy voice or anything. So we we've made some choices of. Who would we like to serve? What's their vision of the world? And there's all sorts of compatibility in that. But one of the things of VSG is when you hear some people say, well, you know, it's not, not our job to, it's not our right even to, to mm-hmm. decide like the morals and the values of our clients' money. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think, well, it's not your job to tell them what their vision should be. Mm-hmm. But if, you're, if you think you don't have any vision and you'll serve anyone, Well, that's a little off. You always have the opportunity to fire your clients. And I know that never happens in the world because the numbers Mm -hmm. poured against it and all that. But imagine how successful those organizations would be that now and again you know, fired some of their clients, just like they'll fire some of their employees who don't fit Mm -hmm. or what have you. Mm -hmm. Now on the back end, so let's suppose I say to this client, well, we understand your vision. Your vision's compatible with our vision. It's not the same vision, but it's totally compatible. So we love serving you. We're going to generate returns and you're going to go do these things with the returns. And we're here to provide a facilitator of more optionality of you making more of the difference in the world you'd like to make. But on the back end, the tools that we're going to use, we're going to use a lens of what tools we think. And when I say tools, which company shares of stock, for instance, Okay. we're going to have a thought about which tools we'll use on your behalf to generate the more money slash more optionality so you can make the difference in the world. We think it would be crazy if we were using tools, let's say companies that were building white supremacist groups mm-hmm. if we use or drug cartels. Mm-hmm. We think you, it would be crazy for us to make the world worse so that you can make the world better. So right. we're gonna use our judgment About examining the tools, those companies, not just from their ability to make money. They're very, I understand they're very, um, a, a lot of very successful drug cartels financially. We're gonna look at those, not just from a financial perspective, but also what do they do? How do they think? And we're gonna make a determination of whether those are tools, companies, shares that are okay to use on the behalf of increasing your optionality in the world. Now, we're also gonna make it clear how we got to those decisions, which things we won't participate on so that you as our client can know about this, what, where our rules are. What our, you may say, no, 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 that's totally fine. And we may say, well, you know, it's not, and you may decide to fire us. So first is, does our vision, is your vision of what you're gonna do with this, our success, is that compatible with us? Secondly, the tools we use We are gonna take responsibility not to invest in things like companies that use slave labor or companies that um, uh, uh, abuse women in the workplace. And there's a lot of sexual harassment. We're we're gonna make some calls on that. We're gonna share that with you. You may or may not disagree, but as your agent, as your facilitator, that is part of our job. So back to the question of, are you here to make the world a better place or to make money? The answer is both. It's the same question. It's like, yes. And our role is to be a facilitator and an agent on your behalf in this ecosystem.
0: So in the future, will shares of stock really be considered tools for change? Are they already? Will we get away from the good bad duality that seems to surround ESG and toward, you know, this might just be a way that works better for everyone long term, this multi-stakeholderism or other attributes. Some of the ideas in this podcast may seem a few degrees beyond what you think ESG is or want it to be, and that stretching is part of the point for our learning. So I hope this was a useful compliment, especially as it relates to other podcasts in the ESG module. And thank you for listening.
1: Oh, continue. If someone said like, you're gonna have to go to sell side conferences, how many days do you think you could make it? Or sell side morning meetings?
0: Oh, I liked the morning meetings because
1: I you weren't in person and you're drinking your coffee and even in New York,
0: if you could get a whole, I liked getting the whole landscape, like the mining and, you know, I don't know. I liked the morning meetings, but cell side conferences, I could do it for four days without having a psychosomatic episode.
1: I don't, I'm not sure if I could make it that long. (music)